Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spiravauer. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited that you're joining me today on the Learning Can't Wait podcast. I love the story of how I met the next guest that we are going to be introducing in just a second, but I also really appreciate and deeply respect all the things this person brings to the table. I want to introduce you to Dr. Messina Morris, the Metaversity Director and Professor at Morehouse College, CEO and founder of Metaverse United, and a VR enthusiast, innovator, educator, speaker, autism advocate, author, wife, and last but certainly not least, mom. Welcome, Messina. I'm so glad to have you here. It's so good to be here, Haley. Thank you for having me. It is absolutely an honor. I feel so fortunate that our paths crossed. I think it's time to tell that story just to kick this off. I love it. Let's go. Do you so, want me to tell it or are you going to tell it? You going to tell it? First part. And you jump in and tell like how this all transpired. How's that sound? Go. So there's a gentleman. His name is Brett Rower. And he gave me some advice before I attended my very first ASU GSV. And that advice was... Get a table at Puesto, the restaurant that's closest to the facility, and just reserve it and invite people to come have meals with you. Now, I think his intention was for me to like pre-schedule some of these meals. And I did some of that. But on the very last day that I was in San Diego, my, my CEO, Isiad, and I were sitting at a table and the table was open. All right. Cue Messina. <laughs> Messina and, her, and her, her crowd are walking by. Yes. Me and my entourage of friends. We were walking by and they were looking at me because I was so hungry. And they told me that, but too bad we were full and I was not going to make it. And Christina Francis, who is executive director of JFF, walks up to your table and is like, is this empty? Is anyone, you know, and you told her about your whole concept of getting this table. And she was like, Nathina, we can sit right here. They don't mind. And I was like, what? They don't mind. And we sat next to each other and we've been sisters, BFFs ever since. So that's that. That is a fact. And what the best part about it was, it turned out that the woman you're naming actually had had a Jeffersonian dinner in Washington, D.C. with my CEO the prior week. And then, of course, like everybody had all these interwebs and connections. But honestly, in Yiddish, you say beshert, which means like just like meant to be. I feel yes. so much like the, the like Messina sitting next you sitting next to me was just for sure like you were meant, I was so we were just enamored with each other and I think we didn't talk to anyone else the whole time. I know and then I, I think we might have asked ECI his name well that well I did but that was not <laughs> it. That, was, that was the extent of the conversation you know what, anyone else at the table well we said names are important we, we even bonded over that how important names we are did. and pronunciation and so yeah it was it was really great and now we get to be recording this episode and, and candidly, I obviously did research because that's how I prepare, but <laughs> I feel so out of my depth with our conversation today because I am not a metaverse expert, but you are. So sure. what can you start us off, set the stage and just help 
our listeners to understand what are we talking about when we say metaverse? What is your scope? And then my first question is tied in, which is how did you come to be the personal and professional version of yourself? Oh, that's deep. That's deep. I can tell you what the metaverse is, but I can most aptly tell you what the metaverse is not. The metaverse is not taking over the world and programming, reprogramming your mind. That's what I can tell you that it's not. I can tell you that at this current moment, the metaverse exists as virtual worlds, which are persistent spaces, persistent shared spaces that you can go into and socialize. You can train, you can learn, you can gain new skills, you can play, you can do all of these different things and you can do it by accessing it through emerging technologies like immersive virtual reality, which I have to say here. You can use augmented reality, which is on your mobile phone. You can use anything that transforms the real world into a space that is also virtual in nature in some way, whether it's digitally simulated environments or it's um, augmented or transformed with something that might be a digital simulation, like a filter, for instance, and that you and the people that you are around within this space can gather, can play, can talk, can be in these spaces together. That's what the metaverse is. And to me, I say that's the embodiment of the internet. So while we are here on these two screens, if we were in the metaverse, I could actually reach out and touch you in some way, whether it would be our avatars touching or some representation of our being that is touching. Yeah. I love it. And I <laughs> I think there's probably some strong uh, stories you could tell about why you start with the what the metaverse is not versus what it is, but that's a good teacher move. I've done that before. I like it. <laughs> I like it. The metaverse is not meta. The metaverse is ours. Ours includes meta. Ours includes all of the big tech firms. It also includes the youngest of young, the oldest of old, the most frail. It's humanity. And it's fine time to start thinking about it as such. I, I can't wait to dig in more about this. I Obviously, you and I spent some time as we were sitting next to each other in San Diego talking about the implications that the metaverse has on education, which that I, I love to wrap my head around during this, yeah. this chat. But um, the second part of my question was, how did you become the professional and personal version of yourself, including somebody who is so enamored by the metaverse and speaks so incredibly uh, passionately about this topic? Okay. Personally, I was a real curious child. I'm one of four. My mom and dad's oldest son, who is my oldest brother, had meningitis that bore left in brain damage. And as, and as a, a young girl who never knew her brother to be a neurotypical individual, only knew him to be profoundly cognitively disabled, I knew that our family was different. I knew that my mom was a bit sad and I wanted to see her happy. And the only way that I thought that you could transform someone was either being a magician, um, being deeply religious, spiritual, and a miracle 
too. So my make believe was that I was concocting some kind of potion or some kind of thing that was going to bring back happiness to our family and cheer my brother and heal, you know, all of our woes. And so I had a great deal of empathy, but also curiosity as a kid trying to figure out how to fix his brain, right? My dad, who was an auto mechanic, um, my mom was a cosmetologist and she ran out cleaning service, so very modest, humble, hardworking people I come from. Also wanted the best for their children. And my dad worked in telecom for Bell South. Well, it was Southern Bell and Bell South over the course of his 30 years. But he bought me my first computer. And my sister, who was older than me, was not quite so interested or taken aback by, like, why do we have this Commodore 64 and not an Atari? And I was like, oh, a new gadget. Let's go. Something for me to think on. <laughs> And remember, and playing it, didn't know what it was, huge relic, and I played and tinkered until I figured out what it could do. And so I became a little gamer girl. I also became a little graphic designing girl. I also became the family collage making girl. And like, um, I was always enamored with weapons, writing books, and using those as tools to escape and reimagine the world. So I was a very avid storyteller. And um, a, a real creative, even though I found science. My mom got sick of me mixing things in her kitchen and decided to buy me a chemistry set because she saw it at Toys R Us. So the chemist in me was birthed through being a gifted, very curious, inquisitive child. And my edu- like the educators in my building as an elementary student noticed that. And I was fast tracked through gifted programs in STEM. So participated in Invent America competitions, always was a part of some kind of innovation or science fair or something, something science related. And when I took chemistry, I figured I was like, I was good at it. It just was the only thing that I literally understood. And I think that's from all of my magic experiments that I did. So I was an old time alchemist that was actually getting the knowledge that I needed to be successful, right? And I just rolled that way. And I love technology. I always felt like technology made our lives easier. I remember the microwave coming into our home. I remember <laughs> when I got my first color TV versus the black and white one. I remember going from having the record player to the cassette player to the CD to <laughs> the DVD to, you know what I mean? Like to like all of these different like totally. technological transformations happen in my lifetime. And if that dates me, and know that I still look very good. No. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, but, no, I remember yeah. this too. I remember I remember all of that as well. And the transformative, I love how these life events, both those that are happening in your home and around your home, have shaped the journey you've taken. Obviously, sometimes it's hard to share that vulnerable experience that you shared. So thank you for doing that. I, I did it without tears, mind you. Tears yeah, and, used to come with it. But you know what, Messina? <laughs> if you had cried, I I think that that is just another level of leadership and vulnerability if that's where you are in that moment. So no shame in crying. When Absolutely not. So that's how I kind of became enamored with science and technology. How did it end up in my life? I married a tech guy. I had five kids who he felt like needed to know tech, needed to gain. I also have a special needs son. 
food hypothesis. So um, it dawned on me that my personal life and professional life had always intersected. And I liked it that way because it was a self-motivator, right? Um, I never had to motivate myself to tackle a new problem or to do more work because I was doing it for the pure love of doing it, sharing something with the world. And so being in the metaverse helps me continue that trajectory of teaching other people how to find their passion, how to be, how to exist in a world with technology that can make our lives easy. Ooh, that is such a great story. I so value how you spoke on the intersection of your professional and your personal. Um, I think for so long, the world made it feel like you had to keep that part, those parts of you very separate. And you see more and more leaders, and I'll name like many, many more women leaders who are naming this outright, that the intersection of personal and professional can complement each other and even enhance it. So I value that you name that and appreciate that that element you shared here. Because I was so afraid of that for a long time, to be honest. I, it was okay when it was my brother. It became a little more complicated when it was my son. So I uh, was afraid of being pigeonholed as a mom because I have, I mean, I worked as a chemist, so I was in a male-dominated field for a long time, and in tech is no different, right? So for a long time, uh, people did put me in a box and define me based on my motherhood and me being a wife, and that was all that I could manage in a day. And I reject that, right? I'm not saying that I want someone to just define me solely on my career or solely on my personal life. I think that I'm a whole person and all parts of me show up at all times in all these spaces. And I feel better in spaces that accept that I don't really do very well in spaces where I have to compartmentalize, where I, I don't get to bring my full self or my true heart to work with me. And so I work best <laughs> And in, in, in the environment that I'm in, as an academic, as a leader, as a director, as a professor, I kind of get to do a lot of different things. But most of all, I get to share my heart um, and I get to be my authentic self. And I don't have to pretend. And I'm not good at that. But, yeah, that's, that's super freeing, right? <laughs> like, I get to be who I am, who I feel most comfortable being on a regular basis. 100% of the day. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And I need that. Like, I, I just really need that as, as a part of being human. Like, I think in, in remaining sane, it's necessary for me to know that I don't have to hide. I think COVID was really freeing for me as a mom, too, because I had a two-year-old. And where was he going to go? <laughs> and I was leading the department. And... <clears throat> so I had work to do within my home with three other school age children that were here with me and a toddler that was being potty trained at the time at daycare that now I had to do that. So, <laughs> you know, um, it, it, it was where I could not hide the totality of who I was while being in the midst of launching this huge program. And that's when I found the power in showing up as my authentic self because I realized that not only did others need crazy, but me too. So, you know, I, I 
I still want to get to this new topic, but I have to just land on this a little bit longer. How do you think you either then during COVID or even now, because I'm sure you've become a more fully realized version of your authentic self now. How do you think you're doing that has impacted people around you? I think that it gives other people permission to be themselves, especially my children, which is which is strange. I never thought my kids really paid me much attention until my 17-year-old one day mentioned that I was perfect. And I was like, a big leap. I'm not perfect. Mommy's not perfect. Like, trust. <laughs> right after you leave here and go to your bed, I'm probably going to be like in a puddle on the floor in tears or, you know, like looking over some paperwork that I don't understand about my son's IP meeting or something. You know what I mean? Like, things happen when the door closes uh, to mommy and daddy's room that you don't get to see. But thank you for thinking that I'm perfect, but I had to let you know that I'm not. But the second thing that he said was, the reason why he admired me so much was because I was unafraid to be myself and to show people myself. He said, that's something that he struggled with. And he was like, when you're happy, you show your joy, even when it's to strangers. He said, you talk to everyone, including the person at Chick-fil-A so much. So I thought y'all really were friends. Like I thought you knew them. And I was like, well, I do know them. Like they are our local community, you know, uh, Chick-fil-A workers or whatever. So, and I come here a lot. But for him to say that was so admirable and it made me realize that, okay, so if he's looking and watching and learning, then so are others. And then people started just sharing with me how me being transparent about my life and my journey mattered to them, like mattered to their ability to get things done to show up fully as themselves to uh, take control of their lives. Oh, wow. Like most of the time people don't see the ugly parts of life for me. Um, but I had a lot of things that happened during COVID where I had to be completely transparent with my students, with myself about where I was. And ask for grace. And so I learned how to tell people what I needed, even today with us changing the time. I needed time, right? I needed a new time. You needed a new time, you know what I mean? Yeah, full stop, we both did. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, it's about really being clear about what you need to be a functional human, to be a loving, kind version of yourself. And I want to always exude that to the world. And that's really important for other people to see because I think part of why we so many hurtful things is because we internalize so much and we feel like there's no one that will ever understand the very gnarly, weird parts of who we are. But to be honest, we all are this stuff. Like we're all human. We all cry. We all get hurt. We all get tired. We all all go through these things. We all want the same thing. And so we have to have to give one another that kind of grace. Um, you have to give yourself that too so yes yes to all of that you know (laughs) you know you and I I I was very candid with you when we met I am a huge proponent of speaking my truth and the experiences I've had and I consider myself like a disability advocate due to my own experiences having chronic illness since age 10 and like you said people notice they come out of the woodwork they tell you they feel like grateful for you having been vulnerable and sharing. And 
it's not common. You see women in leadership roles, and I imagine even more so for people of color, to have that sort of fearlessness in sharing because the risks are greater, right? Yeah. The risks are greater. And so it can be really difficult <laughs> to overcome the perceived response from those around you. But yeah. my experience has been like yours, where it has been both freeing for myself and has helped others around me really live their true authentic selves and perform or live in their live their life in the way that they they need and want to. You know what's so funny is I realized I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Like maybe I'm too loud, too boisterous, but I do know that God has a way of protecting from things that are not good for me. So even when I desire and want certain things, because that's not where I'm going to thrive. That's not where I'm needed the most. If, if, if there is a perceived level of harm to my psyche or to my spirit that will deter or change my faith, I think that God always needs to shift, to shift me and move. And I'm okay now. Well, I think I've always been okay with not being equals. Cup of tea, I was a bully kid. So after a while, you kind of get into a place where it's like, Either I can keep changing and, and, and bribing you with candy or like, you know, wanting to play with me or I could play with me. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I know somebody so, who's going to be nice to me all the time. <laughs> me. Right. <laughs> um, and so I've learned I learned that lesson a long time that everyone's not going to like you and everyone is going to have an opinion of you as well. And honestly, that's not any of my business. Mm-hmm. And even when they share, it's still none of my business because their issue with me has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with their mirroring of something that they are moved by um, within me. As long as God is okay with me, I'm okay. And um, since I'm good with him, I'm good. And mm-hmm. that, that's, that's, that's just, like we say, on GP. Like, uh, yeah, like, I'm just not going to change who I am to fit a role to um, climb or clamor to some perceived time. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to show up and I'm going to speak to everyone, whether they like or speak to me or not. But I will not change who I am because I need to fit into someone's box. I just, only if it's going to make me better, if it's going to make me a better humanitarian, if it's going to make me more compassionate, more caring, it's going to build my faith muscle. If it's going to make me more um, aligned with what God's will for my life, yes, I will change. But I will not change just because someone said, you know, I don't like that lipstick. You really could use another shade. I beg your pardon. Mm. I love it. <laughs> you know, I'm just not going to do it. This could apply to so many things, but I love that you chose lipstick as like the real metaphor here for this message. <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. It's so real. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I actually needed that message and it's, you know, it's tough. It's tough. You know, being, especially as the world is changing and there's so much hardness and sadness and there's so many difficult things to focus on. And, you know, as a parent having beautiful babies at home and I got two boys, I know you have five boys, like 
<laughs> you could be taken apart by all of it around you. The people, the, the situations, the news, the politics. It's, it's very tough to keep your head afloat. And, and yet we do. And you're, you're building things. You're creating. You're giving life to new technologies and new ideas and being there for your children and creating an environment that makes you happy. And that is just profound. It's really profound. You know, I feel very fortunate, very fortunate to have the life that I do. And I know that when I was a kid, while I had a, I did have a great life, I feel like I had a lot of love surrounding me. My parents did. They're very good. Things were obviously different. Um, my children are spoiled life, <laughs> according to like the way that we were parents. Like they don't have to wait Christmas to get things right. Like they can get Hot Wheels anytime because they're like a dollar to change. So you know their their worldview is a bit different. But I do know that. When I was a little girl, I would always look at the adults around me and wonder how they became who they are. And so I, I spent a lot of time around elderly people asking them a lot of questions. And one of the biggest things that I learned as a young girl was that no older person wants to regret. They always talk to you about regret. Regret is one of the things that they always say, like, I regret not doing something or I regret not trying something or I regret that I didn't have the opportunity. So now I'm, I sit in the seat of gratitude because I don't have lots of regrets. I am who I hoped I would be in terms of my station in life, the family that I have, the career that I have. And the way that everything has come together. And there are hardships within that. But all of it makes for a beautiful, messy life, right? And I want young people to know that in the midst of me building this and helping them to also see their value in building this new space, this space that is wide open for the taking, is to create spaces that they really want to inhabit to create space for who they are in this world and others like them, to be the voice of those who are voiceless. But more than anything, be able to look yourself in the mirror every single day and say, I value you, I respect you, and I like you. That's the goal. The goal is to make sure that others see who they are how wonderful they are and how unique they are and all the gifts and talents they bring. That's the goal. I value, I respect you, and I like you. I like that. Because <laughs> you can you can say you love yourself, but do you really like yourself? Like, mm. do you like who you are? I went through a time when I think I was just like a fussing mom, you know? And I was like, I don't I like her. I don't, I don't like that mom. Mm. Um, I want my kids to remember me as being a fussing Right. Mm-hmm. So I just don't fuss anymore. I don't nag anymore. Like, but I, I have, I have to take some lessons there. Woo! My boys would argue that I need that that class in the middle. Because guess what? The thing is, we're here to guide them, and they're going to be who they are. And inherently, they already know who they are. Yes, totally. And you trying to make them into who you think they should be. 
is just prolonging their journey to get to who they are. Mm-hmm. So yeah. just shepherd who they are. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. Messina, you know, what's so funny. You and I were talking right before I hit record about the length of this episode. We're like, yeah, you know, it's our great at 25, 30 minutes. And I'm like, I cannot wrap this podcast up and not have had you share the incredible work that you've done, uh, both at Morehouse and Metaverse United to build the Metaverse City and your organization. But I also am like, well, we're kind of almost at 30 minutes. Maybe we just need to do a second episode another time. (laughs) I'm, I'm here for it. You know, sometimes it is what it is. And I've done some great things professionally and I am grateful for those things. But sometimes, sometimes people just need to know the person behind me. Well, and and you know what? There's a lot more to all of us as humans than the things we are able to have as our outputs, right? Like our professional outputs. They're important. And, you know, you've named really noble reasons that you're involved in this particular space so that children can see themselves and the students that you work with can see themselves and creating and evolving and innovating And yet you're also this person, this very, very multifaceted, unique person who has an incredible story. And I love, love, love (laughs) hearing more about it than I did over our two hour late lunch at Puesto. (laughs) Right, right. It was, uh, yeah, that was remarkable. This is the thing is, I'm always very astounded by the people that I feel like particularly places and you're one of those people. Like I said, I dealt with a lot of shame around chronic illness as well. Not just from my brother or my son, but myself. Being a, a woman who self-identifies as a new person, being a woman who has had considerable amounts of challenges physically, who just literally recently had surgery on her shoulder. But my body has not always been cooperative with where my mind is. And that has taken a toll on my spirit. And it's like, I think people need to understand that those people who are successful still go through challenges. And and why would I just go ahead and call myself successful? Usually people wait for other people to call them successful. But I I am calling myself successful because I know what I have overcome, right? And so having overcome these physical debilitating moments where I literally could not move if I feel like pleated, begged, willed my legs to move, right? Mm-hmm. Or my arms to move. It was not going to happen. Being in those vulnerable positions where you have to be at the mercy of others' humanity changes you, right? It changes you. It, it can either jade you or it can make you into a better I choose to be a better and um, also choose to learn how to set boundaries so that I won't be at the mercy of those people who are cool and not quite uh, at the level of vibration in the universe where they are able to be kind and giving and charitable and understanding. So I, um, I seek to have patience with those people. And I seek to have patience with myself. And that means that I have to create those boundaries for myself and parent myself in a way that means that I am protecting my own space, my energy, and the things that are important to me. And so I get to choose. And that's the one thing that we don't talk a lot about is 
do you really get to choose or are you riding the wave of what society says that you should be? I say I get to choose because if we only have one life, I should get to choose something. I didn't get to choose being a female. I did not get to choose being black. Uh, I didn't get to choose what family I was born into. I didn't get to choose a lot of different things. But I do get to choose peace. I do get to choose joy. I do get to choose purpose. And I do get to choose when I'm very tired and I need to restore myself, I get to choose rest. This feels a bit like a call to action for our listeners, maybe for us. I love it. I could honestly, Messina, the, the notion of choice drives me as a human being. It's it's why I'm involved in education to begin with, literally because of the idea of choice. And human beings should have the ability to choose the path that they take. And education is one of the only ways I know how to affect that in children, yeah. allow them to have choice. A great education lets them choose their path forward. Otherwise, what, what, do, what do children have? They're, they have the station they were born into, which in many cases is not always, is not great. And so yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, choice. Woo. The thing is education has failed. And I'm going to say it. I'm an educator. I'm a certified educator. I am a mother. Yes. I, the system is shattered to pieces. And I, I applaud those who continue to feel like they can move within the same boundaries of the system. And make it work it has failed and i want people to accept it Mm -hmm. because until you accept that it is failed you will never change it you will never change it and it has failed there are children who are in the ninth grade who cannot read in america why that is the most bizarre insane ludicrous ridiculous thing in life you can't read and I mean, like, there's not a, like, you can't read a chapter book type of you can't read. I'm talking mm-hmm. about you can't read Jack Ran Down the Street mm-hmm. type of read. And yeah. so that, for me, signifies huge failing, not just on our system, but within the educational structure and the edifice and the power structure that, that binds or, or governs education needs to change. And I don't care how much money you throw at a problem. The problem is not going to be solved because you're doing the same thing to solve it. That's like... The definition of insanity. Did I, did I say that? Hmm. But it's the truth. So I, my, my biggest issue with the educational system, academia, all of it, is this inability to be a dynamic system that changes and is fluid and is no longer accepting mediocrity as a standard of achievement. Like for me, everyone has the capacity to learn, to grow, to understand. Do you want to know how I know this? Because the same way that they earmark people for gifted programs or STEM programs like I was, or in our school system, you earmark the ones that you feel like are failing or falling behind and you kind of label them they become factory workers or the garbage truck drivers or whatever, okay? It's not that those people are any less brilliant than you are because the roads that we travel down every day, that these people who were considered, oh, they didn't do their work or they weren't capable or they weren't intelligent enough, these same people who work on our streets 
have enough wherewithal to understand how to make sure that the lines in the street are straight, how to make the right paint so this space, to make sure that the pressure and the torque that is going onto the gravel is not going to create potholes or a large, massive sinkhole in the ground. They understand the layers of the earth. They understand rain and the atmosphere. They understand so many other things. So you cannot tell me that the man who built the bridge is not as intellectually capable as the man who is sitting behind the desk calling the shots. That you cannot tell. And so you mean to tell me that they are trainable once they become adults, but as children, they weren't. When the brain was really malleable and able to be formed. No, this behavior of not achieving is learned behavior. And it's given to these, these young people in a way that signifies a true apathy for their existence as human beings. And that is what I have a problem with. I have a problem with not seeing young people as the future. Because whether you like it or not, you're going to get old. And the little people that you see that are walking around hoping someone sees them are mm-hmm. going to be the next future. The next future that either, either is going to remember you as helping to transform their life and their station in life and give them opportunities, or they're going to see you as a villain who, as soon as you die, you go to your grave, they're going to sweep your little vision of who you were away and hope you never return, and neither does your ghost. So what I'm saying is that we have got to heal a broken system, but we have got to heal communities, we've got to heal neighborhoods, we've got to heal families. And that is a multi-pronged situation. And it's going to take more than just one or two Saturdays every four months to go out and say, oh, but I gave a coat to a little boy because he might have been cold. And it was the summertime you gave me coke. I mean, I'm just saying, like, I I just need for us all to do a better about some of the things, myself included, that are happening. I choose to do it in via research and through community programs, advocacy. Others may choose to be boots on the ground and go into the schools. Teachers every day show up and are present. But they need new methods. They need new ways to reach the young. They need new ways because somehow in our society, we have gotten educators mixed up with babysitters. Educators are not babysitters. Mm -hmm. Educators are just that, educators. And they need support. They need respect. They need money because they are also parents who are taking care of their own families and children. And you can't help somebody get out of their station in life if you're just as impoverished as they are. So you can't be working as an educator and trying to focus on 40 kids and then having to rush from that job and go to another job just to be able to feed your kids. And you can't do homework with your kids. Trust me, I've lived that life. Mm-hmm. I know what that's like. Like, I live that life like today. So like what I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> but you can't the, the the multi-tier that the educator can create anybody else in the world, but the educator is not respected enough to be able to work one job and then be able to spend time with her own or his own family um doing things to build their own legacy. It's ludicrous. Mm, it's too much. It's too it's much. Too much. And it's apropos because it's 
Right now, when we're recording, it's Teacher Appreciation Week, and I actually actually posted, though, I don't love Teacher Appreciation Week because it highlights the fact that teachers are underappreciated the other weeks of the year. So All 51. All 51 of them. You know, I don't want to end on a dark note, but I do have, you know, it's a perfect time to ask my final question, which is, and if you could tie it, because we didn't really touch on this, but if you could tie it to the metaverse, I'd be excited for that. So the last question I always ask my guests is if you could give a teacher starting their career any advice, and this could be a college professor or a K-12, what advice would you give? I would tell them to own their craft. Own your you are the expert. You are perfect to do this work. Do not allow the work to cloud your vision, your judgment, or your purpose. Because the work is great. It can be done right. And the one thing that you do have when you go into the classroom, or that you think you do or not, is an expertise. And students need that. Parents need that. They'll be the authority figure that you are supposed to be. Add value to that space. Add value to the building, but also to your leadership building and shine. That's good myself. And if I could tie it to the metaverse, I would say, and don't be afraid of using technology. Mm-hmm. Do not be afraid of emerging technology and always evolving as a lifelong mind. Do not go into that opportunity and say, this is what I know my knowledge stuff at college or at my training program, my preparation program. No, 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 no. You did not. And if you are having trouble figuring out what emerging technology you can use in your classroom, then that is when you that you're not the middle of stuff. I'm going to give you a real relationship and guidance and help you find what you want to be safe, how you can bring into your culture, curriculum, how you can drive student achievement to incorporate not all of the technology, but at least one of them. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Oh, speaking of shining, Messina, you are such a wonderful human that I'm so glad is in my life. And I'm so grateful to have met you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to see the many ways we connect in real, in the real world. After this episode. Absolutely. So you must have me back so that we can talk all things. That's and a given. Yes. Yes. And, and what's the metaversity and how do we come up with that? And who I'm in partnership with and all those great I can say that I'm grateful for several mentors who I will not call my name because I'm sure to miss one, but whose shoulders I stand on and who continue to support me even now. So um, they know who they are. And I'm grateful for my own village. Ah, and to all people. Oh, well, thank you again so much for joining with Tina. And thank you to all the listeners who tuned in today. Take care. Thank you for having me, Haley. 
Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com.